Well, guys, thanks for leading us in uh, worship during this time. And I want to say Merry Christmas to you. Uh, my name is Phil Shields. I'm one of the teaching pastors from our North Avenue campus. And it's been a little while since I've been able to be with the Tri-Village family. And I am so excited to be with you this morning. Uh, I love this place. It's great seeing faces that I know, and uh, especially in this season of Christmas. And so if you are visiting for the first time here, uh, just welcome, warm welcome to you. I hope you find this to be a great warm family uh, that you can get connected with. So we're going to be jumping into our series, The Promise of Christmas, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, do whatever you need to do to uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke 1. And if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're going to put the Scripture on the screens. Uh, but we're going to be in Luke 1. So here's the deal. I know that we can come into this place and uh, we can put on a really good face. Uh, we can get ready on a Sunday morning. We can put on our face like everything is good. But for some reason, the reality is is that for many of us, we are coming in and we have this focus on our past, or maybe it's on our present and the pain that is taking place within our lives. And we're coming in and, and it's really hard, and so we're dealing with a lot of doubt, we're dealing with a lot of fear, maybe it's disappointments and uncertainty, and what my prayer is for you and for me is as, as we gather here, that we would leave today recognizing that the promise that Jesus brings is a life of hope. And so if you are going through that pain right now, I just want you to know that what we look at today, what, what Luke 1 has in store for you is a message of hope. So I want us to be uh, there at Luke 1. And so I want to invite you to stand with me as we read from Luke 1, starting in verse 68, and we stand out of reverence for God's holy word because we believe that this is the transforming word of God. So starting in Luke 1, verse 68, it says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Father, I pray that as we cling to this beautiful, beautiful psalm, that we would see the promise of salvation. That we would see the promise of comfort. 
and that we would see your glory, and because of that, we would be worshipers of you. So guide us. I I pray that these would be your words, that you would guide us in your your word today. It's your name I pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So let me, uh, let me start by asking you a question. Anyone here start playing Christmas music on November 1st? There's always one, okay? So Christmas music tends to start, I can remember shopping in the month of October uh, at Costco and they already had the Christmas stuff up. And, uh, and so Christmas comes and we end up wanting to get into the season of Christmas really early. Well, in my home, we did not start on November 1st. We started a little later, but uh, every year I tend to put a playlist together of Christmas music that we play in our home and that we just, you know, Alexa just seems to know what we want to hear. And so we put these uh, playlists together. And for me personally, I want to make sure that my kids know the Christmas classics that they just know what the Christmas music is all about. And when I say the classics, I don't mean Elvis or Bing Crosby. I mean like the song Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC, okay? Uh, You know, Baby Come Home by U2. I am putting on all of Mariah Carey and, and all the Christmas music that's taking place. And my kids actually think there's something wrong with me. But I put that on, and before you judge me and thinking, well, what in the world are you doing to your kids? Uh, We put such a variety of Christmas uh, music on, and we start listening, and and we take it all in throughout this season. One of the things that I find, though, is that whenever I look at the Christmas music that's out there, uh, what we find is that there's a lot of songs that you're wondering, like, where's the background in that? I don't know if you know the name Bobby Helms. Bobby Helms is actually known uh, in 1957 for releasing a song. He was a country music singer, and he ended up releasing the song Jingle Bell Rock. You, of course, know that song. You probably play it. It's probably on one of your playlists. But Bobby Helms is known for that song. In fact, he only had two other songs that he wrote that made it to the charts. And so Bobby wrote this song, and it's been played, and he probably had no idea what was going to happen with that one song, but he ended up becoming, in a sense, a one-hit wonder. And so he is known for that song. It makes me think that whenever we listen to our Christmas music, what were the the authors of the, the songs that we listened to, what were they going through when they wrote those songs? What was it that they were experiencing in life? What what was taking place with them? Because for Bobby Helms, he's known for one song, and i got to be honest, it doesn't have a ton of meaning. See, I want to ask you, what are you known for? You, actually, your life represents a song. It's a song that you live out And whatever you are processing, whatever the circumstances are that you're going through, that is the song that you sing. And so I want to know, what is the the song of your life? What is the thing that you are expressing, whether it's at Christmas time or in January, in the middle of winter when everything around us is gloomy? What is the song that you represent? 
See, as we look at Luke 1 and the verses that we find there, and I want to encourage you today that at some point you end up reading the entire chapter of Luke 1. I believe that there's a principle. There's a principle for our life and living, and it's this. It's how you view your need for redemption. It's going to determine the psalm, the the psalm that your life is going to proclaim. Whatever you determine, your need for redemption, that's going to determine this. And so whatever you are experiencing, I am praying that as we leave here today, the psalm that we are proclaiming is that salvation has come. So in the story of Zechariah, we're actually going to see three psalms. And we're going to jump back and forth. We, we read the psalm that he has there starting in verse 68. But really, his psalm started long before that. See, Zechariah is a priest. And you might not know this. If you go back to the beginning of Luke 1, you're going to find his story there. Zechariah was a priest. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the text in Luke 1 says that they were righteous And they were obedient to God's ways. When you read that in the Bible, what it means is that these people are being spoken of with such massive accolade. This is the thing that we would want for ourselves. That if we were, if our name was in the scripture, that this is what we would be known for. And so it says in the text that that they were obedient to God's ways. Zechariah was a holy man. He served people. He was in the church. He was serving people in the church. And he was the one that was praying over people and blessing people. And he was honoring God. And what's interesting is that whenever you start looking at this, you have, uh, in Luke 1, you start seeing the story of Zechariah build, and you're like, man, this guy is amazing. And then you get to verse 18. See, in verse 18, what we end up seeing is Zechariah is actually, he's got a psalm, and it's the psalm of doubt. That's the psalm that he is, he's singing about, and that's what he is experiencing. And what we find then in Luke 1-7, after all this description takes place, it ends up using the word but. See, it says he's holy, he's righteous, but... Whenever you see that word in Scripture, you better pay attention to what comes next. In fact, I want you to see what it says there in Luke 1, 7. It says, But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. See, even when it looks like the pillar of holiness, the pillar of righteousness, is super successful in life, there is a but this. See, they are going through this experience where they're living in a society where when they are childless, it's absolutely disastrous for their life. You you might be wondering, well, why is it disastrous? Well, it's disastrous socially and economically for Zechariah and Elizabeth. See, socially, because back in this time that we find Zechariah, people thought that when a woman was childless, that there was some awful sin in her life that was making it so that she couldn't bear a child. 
And when that's taking place, what ends up happening is the society ends up looking upon her with great disgrace. I mean, so you can imagine they're walking through the town and they're starting to think, you know, what, what are the people saying about us? Like, he's a priest. She's married to a priest. And he must have some really deep sin because they have no child. It impacts them economically because in that society, when they were getting to the place of aging and they needed care, it was always the children that would take in the parents and care for them in their old age. And so now they don't have that. And so this is a time where we find that this holy man ends up being hit with this incredible sense of pain each and every day. In fact, can you imagine what it was like for him? He would come to the temple, and I would imagine there were times that people would bring their newborn children, and he would be blessing the children, and he would be praying over them, yet all the time hurting because he didn't have his own. Elizabeth is deep in pain. And then what we find, if you look at verses 8 through 25, we see this incredibly crazy thing take place. So Zechariah, as a priest, he has to go into the temple, and it was chosen by a casting of lots that he would go in and he would burn incense at the altar of incense while all the people would gather outside the doors and they would be praying. And so he enters to do the priestly duties, and as he ends up walking in, to the right of the altar of incense is the angel of the Lord. Now for Zechariah, this ends up creating all sorts of fear. That this is not what normally happens. If he's entering that place, that's not the norm. And right there is an angel of the Lord, and he enters, and this angel has a message for him. What's incredible with this is that as he is entering, the message that is coming is one of great hope. See, the angel says, hey, you have been praying, your prayers have been heard, which means that whenever we read this, Zechariah was a holy man that had been praying for a child for many, many years, and now the angel who is sent by God is saying, you're going to have a child and it's, your child is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, to Jesus, the prophet of the Most High. And so he's, he's telling him he's going to have this son, and he's giving uh, Zechariah some instruction on how to raise him, what his son is going to be about, his purpose. And you would think that Zechariah in this, those moments, all of a sudden, great excitement. A tremendous excitement. You would think he could not wait to run out of the room to go to his wife and to say, you're going to be pregnant. Our prayers have been heard. But then we see Luke 1.18. I mean, look at it with me. Luke 1.18, it ends up saying this. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. So Zechariah ends up saying to the angel of God, give me some proof. Like I want to have some control in this situation. 
You need to tell me how this is going to be taking place. How can this happen? I have to control the scenario around me. Men, I want to give you uh, some thoughts here. Whenever you read this text, Zechariah does something incredibly smart. He says to the angel, I am old, but he never says his wife is old. I mean, notice how he does it. He's even being politically correct in talking to the angel of the Lord. She's well along years. I didn't say old, just well along. How is this going to take place? And so Zechariah ends up questioning this, and what ends up happening is the angel ends up saying, because you didn't believe. That's a key word. Because you didn't believe. You are going to be silent until this prophecy comes true. And so Zechariah is, is struck with not being able to say a word. In fact, uh, he ends up fulfilling his priestly duties in there, and it takes a little longer, and then he goes out, and the people are wondering, and he can't say a word. Now, I want you to remember something here. When we think today of who is like a holy individual, often you're going to probably think about a pastor or maybe a missionary somewhere. This is a priest. A priest who knows the Old Testament. He knows the prophets of old. He knows what the prophets have said. And what is happening with Zechariah is he is in the middle of his psalm of doubt. His heart, all he can sing is doubt because the circumstance in his life, in his mind, is stronger than the power of God. And whenever he has seen this, it's taking root. And in that moment, he starts to allow doubt to come in. And when doubt comes in, fear takes over. And when fear takes over, forgetfulness ends up entering your mind. So here's the deal. For some of you right now, you have entered today and your psalm that you are singing is a psalm of doubt. The circumstances in your life are, are so hard or it's hitting you so hard that that's all you can, you can sing. It might be the loss of a job or your marriage is in tension or you have gone through a divorce or that diagnosis has come in that you didn't expect or for financially you're wondering how are we going to make it. Whatever it is, these circumstances come in and they end up making us sing doubt. And it's not a lovely psalm. But it's one that we come into church and we fulfill our duties like the priest Zechariah did and we put on the face and we continue. But whenever we get to the holy word of God and we start looking at this, we have this feeling of doubt and fear and wondering, where are you, God? And we sing the psalm of doubt over and over again. And so as, as we look at this, I, I want you to see there's a quote. Phil Riken is the president of Wheaton College, and, and Riken ends up saying this. He says, Anyone who wants to follow Jesus 
The ear is the most important part of the body. I mean, this, is, uh, this hits me hard because whenever we look at what Zechariah is doing, the circumstances in his life, he is forgetting that the ear is the most important part. See, he has been given a message straight from heaven. And instead of listening, he speaks. Instead of listening, he thinks on just his past. And what I want you to understand this morning is Zechariah was not defined by his past, just like you are not defined by your past. You are not defined by the circumstances that you are in at all. What you are defined by is the hope that we find in Luke 1. And so whenever we look at this and we, we take this in, what we have to say is, if I am viewing the, the redemption that I need, if your will is that you just want whatever you want in your mind, then you are allowing your circumstance to define you rather than seeking the will that God has in store for your life. And so here's the, the thing that's interesting. How you view your need for redemption determines if your psalm is one of doubt. See, how you're viewing your need for redemption is going to define that psalm that you sing, and it could be that you are in the middle of the psalm of doubt. Now, if we ended there, it might be one of the most depressing Sundays you've ever entered this building, okay? But that's not the end of the story. It's one psalm that you can sing, but there's two others. I want you to see the, the next psalm that we end up seeing that enters Zechariah's life is the, the psalm of reflection. Now this is an interesting psalm, but if you look at it in verses 23 and 25 and, and you end up reading all of this, doubt has led Zechariah to a place where his mouth is shut. For you, uh, ladies, I, in fact, whenever I was reading this, I was thinking about Chad and Jayla, Okay. Man, we cannot wait for that little low to show up, all right? Super excited. But I was thinking, it might be that Jayla would hope that the nine months of pregnancy, Chad was silent. I don't know. But in this, he has to end up leaving and communicating with his wife, and for, for nine months of pregnancy, he can't say a word to her. No words of encouragement, no words of love, no words that would get him in trouble with her, nothing like that. He is absolutely silent, and it, he's told this is going to happen because he didn't believe. And so he, he voiced this, and so the psalm of re reflection sets in. If you look at verse 25, what you're going to find is that Elizabeth, somehow she ends up realizing that she is going to get pregnant. I think that Zechariah communicates with her to some degree, and then she gets preg pregnant. And in verse 25, she says these incredible words, The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Man, if only Zechariah would have said that in the temple. The Lord has seen this. Now see, here's the interesting thing. It's beautiful. 
But notice where she goes, her disgrace among the people. She thinks that the redemption that she needs is that she will be given a child, so the disgrace of how people view her will be gone. And what we end up seeing is that her thought of finally getting that disgrace removed is not what she needs. The redemption that she needs is actually found in the womb of Mary. And that her child is the forerunner. And so she is just focused on that disgrace piece. And as a priest, what we end up finding is that Zechariah, he's going through this psalm of reflection while his wife is dealing with this pregnancy. Now imagine this. He is a priest, so he probably communicates quite a bit. He's probably standing in front of people, communicating. He's probably talking all the time. He's blessing people. He is praying over people. All of that. And when that is happening, his identity is probably wrapped up with him being part of the priestly uh, clan there. And what we end up seeing is that whenever this forced silence strips him of his self, when you enter uh, the silence, when no words at all are able to be spoken, you end up, all you can do is reflect. All you can do. See, in fact, when we look at this, uh, reflection is a time of great emotion. And you actually can reflect on things without words. Between 1803 and 1804, Beethoven wrote his Symphony Number no. 3. Now, before I go any further, I am not a classical music expert, Okay? But as I study, there are times that I listen to and I have a soundtrack going or something like that. And so I ended up listening to Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3. The reason I listened to it is as I was looking at uh, classical symphonies, I was looking at what happens when there's no lyrics, no words. It's just instruments. And I would encourage you at some point to do this, but as I was listening over the last couple weeks to this symphony and, and hearing what was taking place, you can hear emotion that is coming as the different uh, notes are being played by a variety of instruments. And it's this journey that takes you. There's, it's times of sounding angry, times of sounding of great joy, times of just this, this little silence that's happening. And there's all these great emotions, and not once in the entire time I was listening to it did I hear a word. No word was spoken. See, for Zechariah, he is going through a symphony. He's going through like all of these range of emotions, all of this is going on, all these movements are taking place. And that's exactly what is happening with him as he is spending time on this reflection, on the message that came, on the prophets of old. He's going through all of these things that he's experiencing. And I would imagine for some of you, that's what you're going through. See, get this, all he can do is reflect and watch his wife who is alone in years deal with pregnancy for the first time. And he can't say a word, and he's reflecting, how could this be? What is happening? Uh, all, the Messiah, this angel's talking about a Messiah that's coming. And what ends up taking place is that the psalm of reflection makes you 
Look at the past and then jump and look towards the future. The song of reflection makes us take into account the needs that we have and how they are going to be met. And I would imagine for some of us, whenever we look at this, we say, okay, his past of being childless and barren is now being totally destroyed. And he's in the years of where he should be a grandparent, and now he's going to be a parent. And it's, it's radically different than the, the will that he had, the, the course that he was setting. And God comes and he does this. See, for some of us, we are going through the song of reflection and, and maybe it was forced upon you like it was for Zechariah. Or maybe you have finally come to the realization that you need to take the time. We are in the Christmas season where reflection should be taking place. And what we find with Zechariah is that he ends up spending this time and he can reflect on the feelings that he had of doubt or he can look towards something for the future. So, uh, I have two kids. My firstborn, I, I can remember when we received the diagnosis of autism. I can remember that message being delivered. And over time, I have gone through the symphony and the psalm of doubt. I've experienced that pain and at times, I have been forced into the silence and into reflecting on, are the promises of God actually true? It's hard. It's painful. But if we take time to reflect, and we don't allow the circumstance to define who we are, to define the future, but we say the promises of God are the future, and I'm going to let that define me, and I'm going to focus on those promises, we are then taken to a really beautiful place. It doesn't always mean that it's going to be easy. But we end up seeing that there is an incredible future that God has planned. Look at verse 76 of Luke 1. In verse 76, this man who was childless now ends up saying this, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. See, as he is spending time in forced silence, he's reflecting on the messages that have been from old and he spends this time, and he gets to this place, instead of focusing on his past, he realizes that there is a great future. And it only comes in a time of reflection, in a psalm of reflection. And so as we look at this, the, the reflection on the promises of God are going to be very key for you. Maybe if you're in that psalm of doubt, you need that right now. Or maybe in 2020, there's going to be something that takes place and you need to go through this. But every year we enter Christmas, we are offered an opportunity to reflect on the promise that God remembered his creation. That God remembered his people. And when God remembers, he ends up wanting to take on this action of love for his people and he ends up doing just that. 
And we end up getting this beautiful psalm that Zechariah writes. But let me remind you, how you view your need for redemption determines on if you're going to use the psalm of reflection. Is your life going to represent that? Are you spending that time reflecting on who God is? So there's the psalm of doubt and there's the psalm of reflection. And then we get to these last verses in Luke 1 and we see the psalm of salvation. It's the most beautiful of all of them. You see it in verses 68 through 75. But here's what's fascinating. When you read this text, Zechariah ends up, he's silent this whole time, and his son is born. And the day he is born, you think that all of a sudden, that the the silence is going to be removed, and it isn't. The silence is still there. And so for the, the tradition of time that they had there, he ends up waiting, and it's about a week, and, and they bring the child to Zechariah, and Elizabeth ends up saying his name is going to be John, and, and people are like thrown because that wasn't a family name of theirs, and they end up saying this can't be true, we got to go to Zechariah, and it isn't until Zechariah writes down his name is John that all of a sudden his mouth is opened. And it makes me look at this and go, why? I mean, the child was born. Why didn't silence break there? And it's because what was happening in Zechariah's life had to come to a place where his belief matched what he was going to say. Where his belief was going to match the actions of his life. And when he ends up saying his name is John, it means that he went from the psalm of doubt, he went through the psalm of reflection, and he realizes he is now in the psalm of salvation because God has come, he is sending his son to redeem the world. And that out of obedience, he does exactly what God has asked him to do. See, his son is now the forerunner known as John the Baptist. And he is the one that is going to tell people of the knowledge of salvation. And Zechariah is overwhelmed with this. He's blown away by what's happening. But here's what's so key. Look at what happens in verse 68. So Zechariah, the words come out of his mouth and look at his first words. Praise be to the Lord. I mean, this dude has been quiet for nine months. You might want to think like he, he would run to his wife and I love you so much or uh, I can't believe this is my son, all of that. And his first words are praise be to the Lord. His first words are worship. See, he and his wife were childless, but God delivered. He was silent and he couldn't even coach or encourage his wife during pregnancy, but God encouraged. He couldn't even name the boy with a voice, but God named him. And so in this, God moves and Zechariah sees. And and, and when that takes place, Zechariah ends up going, all I can do is praise. All I can do is worship. So when my son Gavin was born, uh, I don't know if this was like uh, for some of you dads, but for me, all I could do was talking about how great my son was. You know, that first time you become a parent, 
You're just going to brag about this child that is a week old, but yet can do the most amazing things in the world. When I look back, I mean, I was bragging about the dumbest things ever. You know, calling my parents. I mean, he pointed. Big deal. But we like, can't stop talking about our, our new child. We want to uh, praise them and we want to tell everybody about how great they are. And what Zechariah does is he doesn't say a word about his own child. He starts with praise and all he can do is talk about the child that is in Mary's womb. See, what he thought was redemption was going to be a child, was going to be a son for him. But what he realized as he went through these doubts is that redemption for him was a Messiah. That it was a Messiah that was coming. And so why does he praise? Well, look at what he says. He says, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Now, here's the deal. Whenever we see the word redeemed, what I want you to understand is that whenever Zechariah is saying this, he's saying, God is paying the price for our salvation. See, he's sending this beautiful child into the world not to just live a great life, but to come to this world to pay the price for your salvation. When freedom comes, when he talks about this, he's talking about this incredible power. Notice he says, the horn of salvation. And whenever you see the word horn, what we have to understand is that symbolizes the strength of an animal. But when Zechariah is saying this, is that the strength of this young baby, this little baby that it's in Mary's womb comes, the power that that baby has is to bring salvation and redemption to his people. See, this is the power that comes in the child whose strength that is coming from Mary, this delivery that comes to humanity is about defeating the sin that you and I can't defeat ourselves. And so Zachariah sings, and he sings the psalm of salvation because his God has come in mercy and grace and come in unexpected ways. And then when he comes, all he can do is praise. All he can do. He's still, his past was years upon years, decades of not having a child. And now he has the child, and instead of first praising God for the child, the son he has, he's praying, praising God for the child that is going to come from Mary. It's worship. So remember this, Zechariah was a priest who sang the song of doubt. And when he was given the message that he had longed for for so many years, he ended up doubting and yet was forced in this psalm of reflection and going, who is God? What is God doing? And through that, ending up seeing the promise of Christmas. And when he sees that clearly, he praises. So here's the deal. For some of you, you are dealing with the circumstance right now. And I'm not saying that that circumstance is ever going to leave you. It might not. But if all you're doing is viewing the circumstance and never viewing the future that God has in store, you will stay in that psalm of doubt. But my prayer is 
is that in the weeks, the days and weeks and months to come, that you would move through that psalm of reflection, that you would take the time and say, what has God said in his word? What has God promised us? How does God redeem? God doesn't redeem with a child. God redeems with a Savior. And that Savior has come for you. See, how you view your need for redemption determines the psalm your life will proclaim. And your life, all Christmas, all next year, when you are a disciple of Christ, is to proclaim the Savior that came, that came and interrupted time to redeem and to pay the price for your sin. And may that be why you worship in the valleys of life and why you worship on the peaks. And so may we as a church be a people that constantly proclaim redemption. Amen? Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you have done. And I ask that this Christmas, as we are focusing on all the things that are taking place among us, the circumstances that we have, that we would remember who you are and what you have done. That you interrupted time to come and to send a Savior. That Zechariah praised you, not for the, necessarily for the child that you gave him, but for the child you were sending to redeem his life from his sin. So Lord, lead us through the psalm of doubt into the psalm of reflection and towards the psalm of salvation so that we can proclaim you all the days of our life. It's your name I pray. Amen.